0: We're going to come to a time in our service now, we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, our passage today is verses 11 to 14, but we're going to read the whole passage from 3 through 14, and I've asked Kevin Ratz if he would come up and read our passage
1: for us. In the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for He chose us, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through jesus christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves in him we have redemption through his blood forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, and he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the works with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory and you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation having believed you are marked in him with the seal the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory this is God's word thanks be to God
0: thanks Kevin let me pray for us once more and just ask the Spirit's blessing on this time and His Word. Spirit of God, we submit ourselves this morning underneath Your Word. We believe that this is a Word inspired by Your Spirit, and so it is a living Word. It is a Word that penetrates past every wall, past every hindrance, past every mask we put on. It's a Word that reveals and exposes, but also applies truth, applies grace, applies your love that you so very much want to want us to experience. And I pray we'd experience that this morning. I pray our vision of who you are would be just expanded and blown up so much bigger. I pray our love for you would be grown. And I pray that where it does not exist, I pray you would create faith in hearts this morning. And where it does exist, I pray you would strengthen faith God grow your people grow your church through this time in your word this morning I ask you say that when you send out your word it doesn't return to you avoid it accomplishes the purpose for which you send it oh God accomplish that purpose in each one of us today And as I always ask now eternal God would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth amen Well, while I would love to attribute it to the fact that I have two daughters, the truth is that I have been a Disney fan for pretty much most of my life. Since I think I was about three years of age and my parents first brought my brother and I to Disneyland, Anaheim, California, I've been a fan ever since then, and I love everything about it still to this day. I love the cartoons, I love the films, I love the ridiculously overpriced merchandise, and of course, I love the theme parks. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had to visit one of these parks yourself, but if, you, if you've never visited one of the Disney parks before, first of all, I recommend it. Secondly, what you might not know is that along with all the fun stuff, the, the food, the atmosphere, the entertainment, everything going on, what you might not know is that there's also characters from the films and the cartoons. They, they wander around the park, and you can meet and interact with them. So you could head over to Toontown and see Mickey and Minnie and hang out with them. You can wave at Anna and Elsa as they go by on the parade. You can even go and get your picture with Chewbacca over at Galaxy's Edge. Just tons of opportunity. It's super cool. I still love it to this day. But one of the characters that I was not at all expecting to encounter the last time my family and I were there was this guy. Next slide. (laughs) Who knows who this is? Who can tell me who that is? Thank you, Gaston. <laughs> this guy, man. If you've ever seen either the, the film, like the cartoon or the live-action rendition of this film, Beauty and the Beast, you know that this guy, Gaston, he's kind of like the main villain, the, the antagonist, the main bad guy of the show. And, and although he's got you know, all kinds of unlikable qualities, as any villain should, Um, One of his more, you might say, defining unlikable qualities that uh, tends to just show itself again and again overall is his shameless, unapologetic self-absorption. I mean, the guy is just enamored with himself. He just thinks he is the best thing in the world since sliced bread. Everyone should just be enamored with him as well. And then through really intimidation and bullying he works throughout the whole story just to make sure that everything remains entirely about him. Is this song about me? Or are we looking at me? Everything just has to be about him. Which, interestingly, this, this kind of toxic narcissism, self-absorption, it's a character flaw that Disney actually applies to many of its villains, which I think actually speaks to its universally unlikable nature for most people. Right? like It's not exactly when you talk about, hey, what kind of qualities do I want in a future husband? You don't think, you know what, someone who's really super into himself. That's what I want. Probably why Bell responded the same way. But I mention all this because as we continue in our teaching series this morning through the book of Ephesians, when you read verses like verse 11, look at verse 11. Speaks of God working out everything to be in conformity with his will. It's got to be about my will and what I want. Or then, uh, what the Apostle Paul writes in verse uh, 6, 12, and 14, about even our salvation, not being first and foremost about us, but about the praise of God's glory and His grace. And we're just like, sorry? I mean, it it, it can make us feel, it can make us begin to imagine that God Himself is actually some big cosmic Gaston in the sky, actually who just needs everything to be about Him, everything needs to be looking at me, and I'm going to use my infinite power and authority and influence to make sure that that always stays that way. I mean, I, I don't want to assume where you're coming from this morning. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that is your view of God. Maybe that's how you think God is, actually. Uh, uh, I, mean, I, know, I know if you were to talk to guys like uh, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, I mean, Hitchens, okay, not Hitchens anymore, you talk to these guys and you told them this description of God, they'd say, that's right. That's exactly what the God of the Bible is like, and that's not even the half of it. And yet, when you read, even those first 14 verses of Ephesians that we've been working through, I think you, you'd probably admit yourself that that doesn't seem to be the tone of Paul's writing about God. It doesn't seem to be how he's presenting him. Not to mention the fact that just you've got occurrence after occurrence. It's talking about God's love for us, a lavishing grace on people. It's blessing us with every spiritual blessing and, and redeeming us by sending his son. I don't know. It just, the, the, the self-absorbed narcissist picture, it just doesn't seem to fit. But what I want to show you this morning from our time together in this passage is that, well, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit, and in fact, what seems at first as we read this like God's self-absorption is actually God working in the best interest, the very best interest of His treasured adopted children, and making that vision that we looked at last Sunday of, of healing and reconciling all the divisions between you and each, each other, us and God, making that vision a reality. That's actually what God is working out here by what seems like self-absorption. So in order to help you see that, I want to look at our passage together today in just two ways, and I want to focus it in from kind of a big, grand cosmic picture down specifically as it relates to us and our salvation. So we're going to look two ways. We're going to look at the purpose of our salvation, and then the plan for our salvation. Just those two things, the purpose of and the plan for our salvation. Okay, so if you close your Bibles, open them again with me, would you, to Ephesians Chapter 1, beginning of verse 11, follow along with me as Paul is going to expand our understanding of God's purpose and plan to unite all things in Christ by expanding and deepening our understanding of the God who purposed and planned it. Okay, so let's look first of all at the purpose of our salvation, purpose of our salvation. Look back with me to that section of 12 verses that Kevin just read for us there, beginning of verse 3. Where I get, first of all, this idea that Paul is speaking about salvation at all is from the language he uses throughout these verses that talk about God's actions towards people in Christ. So you see in verse 4, he talks about God choosing to make us holy and blameless in His sight. Verse 5, look there, he he speaks about adopting us as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, which we looked at last week, talks about our redemption through the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. And then finally, verse 13 speaks of those who hear the gospel, believe, and then are marked and sealed with God's Holy Spirit. Which, If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard at least one, if not all of those things, used to describe some aspect of our salvation. But as I said when we began, there are these three places in particular in these same verses where Paul explains Uh, the why of God's actions towards us in Christ, The, the purpose of His actions towards us in Christ. And you see those in verse 6, 12, and 14. Let's just look at them quickly. So first of all, verse 6, after describing our adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, Paul says the purpose of that was to the praise of His glorious grace. That's why he did it, to the praise of His glorious grace. Then verse 12, look down there. Paul speaks about uh, these uh, Jews who had first trusted in Christ being saved for the praise of His glory. And then finally, verse 14, describing the Gentiles who had come to hope in Christ for their salvation as being saved to the praise of His glory. So that's how he's describing the, the purpose of God's saving active actions towards us in Christ, to the praise of His glory. Now, to be clear, the results the results of God's actions towards us remain the same. Those are the same no matter what. That is, like those who are in Christ, we are made holy and blameless. We are adopted as sons. We we are redeemed and forgiven, sealed with the Holy Spirit. All of that remains unchanged. But what's also clear is that God's ultimate purpose in those actions was not first and foremost to accomplish our salvation, but for the praise of His glory and grace. That was God's ultimate purpose in doing that, for the praise of His glory and grace. And no, this is not the only place you see this in the Scriptures. This is all throughout the Bible, actually. Now, let's slow down for a minute and just like look at what we're investigating here. Let's, let's get our terminology down, what we're talking about, glory and grace. What, what does that even mean? Okay, uh, uh, grace, biblically speaking, just simply means God's unmerited favor towards us. Okay, you could describe that as shorthand to help you remember. It's just it's getting something we don't deserve. That's what grace is, and that's what God has undoubtedly given us in our salvation. Secondly, glory. What does glory mean? Well, that's a little bit harder term to define. Lots of different interpretations of this. Uh, as one commentator defines it, this word glory, kabod in Greek, uh, sorry in Hebrew, and doxa in the Greek, is he says explained as God's brightness. As his splendor, it's his radiance that's visible to us. That's what glory is. Some people describe it as, as God's weight, the, the gravity of his presence with us. That's what glory is. John Stott defines it this way: He says, The glory of God is the revelation of God. And the glory of his grace is his self-disclosure as a gracious God. So altogether. Putting this all together, what that means here is that God's ultimate purpose in saving us was both to reveal Himself as a gracious God, that is, giving us something that we don't deserve in our salvation, and to create worshipers of His glory and grace as well as witnesses of His glory and grace to others. That was God's purpose in saving us. As stock concludes, to live to the praise of His glory and grace is both to worship Him ourselves as the gracious God He is and to cause others to see and praise him too. Okay? But I don't know, if you're at all like me, I'm kind of still just like, yeah, we're just... No, 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 no. Look like, really, though? My, my salvation... God's purpose in salvation was first for his praise and glory? Seriously? That, it just... The, the reason... It just sounds wrong, Right? The reason is we, it sounds wrong to us because even, if, like, even though we still benefit in exactly the same way, whenever you hear about someone or you see someone who would say, I'm doing this stuff for my own glory, it just sounds super bad, doesn't it? It sounds wrong. We're just like, no, you don't, you're not supposed to do that. I, that's not how I was raised or whatever it is. It just sounds immediately wrong to us. And so we just reject it. Why? Well, because on the one hand, we all know people like this. People who are just constantly hustling for their own applause and, 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 and praise. And, and come on, they're super annoying and tiring to be around. Just like, can you stop talking about yourself, please? And then on the other hand, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible that describes, you know, the, the, the wrongness, the sinfulness of things like pride, seeking your own self first. We, we were raised to, to understand this, particularly in the church. I mean, one of the most well-known verses about love, Uh, Talking about that passage in 1 Corinthians, which always gets read at weddings, one of the descriptions of love is that it does not seek itself. It is not self-seeking. So when you got these two examples to go with, I think it makes good sense why we hear God being first and foremost about His own praise and glory, and we're like, no, no, that can't be right. Doing reading for this this past week, I found uh, some of the work that John Piper has done on this particular passage to be super helpful. I hope it's helpful for you as well in understanding what's going on here and why this is a good thing. He notes, first of all, people that we meet that act this way, like namely people who are proud, superior, who are completely absorbed in themselves, are very often motivated in those behaviors by either insecurities or trying to compensate for some real deficiencies. That's, that's why people often act in these proud, superior ways, because they're, they're really covering up for stuff that they don't want you to see. But, Piper says, God is not weak and has no deficiencies. He always was, and whatever else is owes its being to Him, and so can add nothing to Him. Therefore, God's zeal to seek His own glory and to be praised cannot be owing to some need to shore up weakness, or compensate for some deficiency. Okay, so that that deals with the first example anyway, helping us to see what God's purpose in our salvation can't mean. It can't mean that God's trying to shore up some weakness or cover over some deficiency He has, because He doesn't have any. And as it relates to then serving and seeking ourselves first, being an unloving thing. Well, (laughs) the simplest way I can say this, I think this just highlights one of the many, many ways that fundamentally... God is very, very unique from His creation. And what is true about Him, if if we were to say it about ourselves, would automatically be wrong. But when you say it about Him, it's actually right. Piper goes on, he describes it this way. Because God is unique and the most glorious of all beings and totally self-sufficient, He must be for Himself in order to be for us. I want to say that again. He must be for Himself in order to be for us. His aim to bring praise to Himself and His aim to bring pleasure to His people are one aim, and stand or fall together. And He explains this by asking one simple question. What could God give us to enjoy that would show Him to be most loving? The answer, there is only one answer possible, isn't there? Himself. If God would give us the best the most satisfying. That is, if he would love us perfectly, he must offer us no less than himself. End quote. And this is where the, the threads, all the different threads of, of God's mysterious will to unite all things to himself in creation and, and do it all in Christ begins to come together. For, for what do we do when someone shows us something? When someone presents something, gives us something that's beautiful and excellent. What, what, what do we do when that happens? We praise it, don't we? we? We tell other people about it. We write songs about it. We post it on our Instagram. That, that's, that's what happens. Your friend drives up in a brand new car. Your girlfriend says, I check out my engagement ring. You've just gone to an amazing concert, a performance. Praise is what just naturally flows out of us. It's just spontaneous. It just happens because when you see something praiseworthy, It elicits praise. It elicits that very reaction. But just to now follow that thought through. In revealing himself, as well as the depths of his glorious grace in saving you, what are you being shown but the most beautiful, excellent thing of all? Something that no beauty, treasure in this life could ever even compare to. It's undoubtedly one of the reasons why King David wrote many of the Psalms, who was king over Israel, had wealth, had had all he could ever want in this world, would still write in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see it now? This is why... God's purpose in saving you, and saving me, is said to be for the praise of his glory and grace. Piper concludes, if God is truly for us, if he would give us the best and make our joy full, he must make it his aim to win our praise for himself, not because he needs to show up some weakness in himself or compensate for some deficiency, but because he loves us. And he seeks the fullness of our joy that can only be found in knowing and praising him. The most beautiful of all beings. Okay. That is the purpose of our salvation. Not that we don't benefit in exactly the same way, but first and foremost, for the praise of his glory and grace. The last thing I want to look at with you from our passage this morning is how it is that God planned to bring it about. How did God plan to bring about our salvation? So let's look lastly at the plan for our salvation. The plan for our salvation. Now, I'm fully aware, fully aware, even in a group like this, because I know most of you pretty well, that whenever it comes to talking about the plan of God and salvation, there are at least two distinct Camps that tend to form around this historically, uh, much of that centering around the sovereignty of God and salvation, maybe how sovereign he is, and then how human will and responsibility plays into all that. I want to, just to be straight up with you, I want as much as possible just to avoid any of that controversy as much as I can this morning, because I, I, I trust that you would agree with me, all of us, we would say that what we are called to be is to be followers of Jesus and his word. Followers of Jesus and his word, not, not Jesus and Calvin, not Jesus and Arminius, not Jesus in some system of thought, however helpful it may be to categorize and understand biblical concepts. We're called to be followers of Jesus and his word. And if you don't even know what any of those names are or mean, don't worry about it. Because my plan, just like it is every Sunday, is just to, pre- to present The text, as best as I can understand it, is the Holy Spirit has illuminated it to me. And then I'm going to trust that that same Spirit is going to open and illuminate your minds and hearts as well to understand what He wants to show us from His Word this morning. So that's where I'm going to focus in, and we're going to avoid, hopefully as much as possible, the historical battles. We'll just let the text speak for itself. But what I trust we could all agree on Is that with the sheer number of occurrences in these verses alone, where Paul speaks of God choosing us, Paul speaks of God predestining us, that word predestined just simply means to decide beforehand, and telling us that God did all these things in accordance with his own good pleasure and will, I trust we could all agree at least that God does have a plan. He's got some kind of plan in some sense of the word that he's working out for our salvation through Jesus. So we can have a conversation you know, about you know, uh, how does human will and responsibility, how does that or how does it does not work within that plan? We can even have a discussion about whether or not you think Paul's right about God's will and what God's plan is for salvation. But what's undeniably true is that according to our passage here, he's got a plan. There's a plan being worked out in some sense of the word. So let's look first of all at verse 11. See what Paul has to say about this plan. Look with me there. He says, in Him we were chosen also. We were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Now the first thing to ask as we read that is, what is God's will? What is His will that He's working out everything to be in conformity with? Well, the answer is what we just spent 40 minutes last week looking at uh, in the verse just previous to this verse in verse 10 where Paul tells us that God's will purposed in Christ was to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That That's God's will. That's, that's what he's working everything to come to work in conformity with. That's the plan. That's the will. And because, as we saw last week, the need for our redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our sins, in order for that will to be realized, to be carried out, I think it's easy to see here our salvation is a part... Salvation is the part of God's plan to unite all things that relate specifically to us. That's, that's the part of His plan that relates to us as, as those who have sin that needed to be forgiven. And what we also see, now that we understand that what that word predestined means, is that according to Paul, some mysterious way, God decided beforehand. Verse four it's told us that you saw, the, he decided before the creation of the world even. Who would be saved from among Jews and Gentiles throughout the entire course of history? That's what it says. How that exactly works itself out, let's have a conversation about it. But it says somehow there's a a choosing, we were chosen beforehand according to this plan. But the other question we need to wrestle with, as it relates to what Paul writes in verse 11, and this is honestly where a lot of the controversy comes as well, is The question What does it mean that God works out everything in conformity with his will? Or to ask it another way, how does God work out everything to be in conformity with the purpose of his will? How does he do it? Now, I don't think we can fairly ask which parts of God's plan does he work out to be in conformity with his will, because Paul just said he did that with everything. But which, like how does God work out everything? To be in conformity with his plan to unite all things in Christ. I think that's an interesting question to talk about for a minute. So the word work that Paul uses here in verse 11, where he says he works out everything to be in conformity, is the Greek word energeo. I'm probably murdering that pronunciation. Ask Nathan afterwards, he'll tell you. The word energeo, which means to cause to function or to bring into effect... So we could read this verse as predestined according to the plan of him who causes everything to be in conformity with the purpose of his will or, or who brings to effect everything to be in conformity with his will. I think that shows us clearly there is an, an active working of God to bring about his will. There's active intent. He's not passively just sitting back and let's just watch and see how this works out. There's an active intent with which he's working to bring about His will, which I think if we take all of these pieces together and just look at it in one whole, I think shows us this. I think this passage is showing us that God's plan to bring all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ is, first of all, a plan that includes our salvation. It includes our salvation. Secondly, it's a plan that was decided on before the creation of the world, before you and I had any chance to do anything good or bad to earn it, or before we could even think about choosing or not choosing it. And finally, a plan that God is actively working out in order to happen exactly as he planned it. That's what I see being taught. You you come chat with me after the service, email me this week, you see verse 11 teaching us something else. But this is what I see, my own understanding, I see God's plan for your salvation and mine, something he planned, decided on beforehand, and a plan that he is working out actively to bring about exactly as and for whom he intended it to. But when you come to verse 13, I think here's where we're shown how that plan starts to work itself out, how God is actively working in creation to bring about our salvation. Look with me there. I think what we see here is a kind of a three-stage process, actually, whereby God's choosing of us now takes a saving effect. Paul says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now very quickly, when Paul says, you also, there's a little bit of debate between who is he referring to exactly. What most commentators agree is that Paul is referring specifically to here to Gentile believers in Ephesus who are reading this letter. So back in verse 12, when he said, we who were the first to hope in Christ, he means Jewish believers who came to believe before this gospel of salvation started being presented to Gentile believers. That's a whole story we read about in the book of Acts. And I think that's actually in keeping in line with Paul's order of salvation that he gives in a pretty well-known verse, uh, Romans 1.16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So I think that that keeps within his order of, of how he presents that. But in writing, you also... Paul is including both Jews and Gentiles in this plan of salvation that he's about to describe. And that's a theme that he's initiating here, which he's going to say a lot more about in the coming chapters about God's desire to bring together Jew and Gentile into one united, single family of God. And the first stage of the plan now, plan for our salvation, Paul says, is, look at it, verse 13, hearing. That's the first stage of the plan. Hearing. You see, Paul clearly stating these Gentile Christians who were also included in Christ, that is, were saved, they were saved when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So, hearing the gospel, that's an essential first part of God's plan to save us, which makes sense, especially when you think that before hearing it, we would have no idea of either uh, God's uh, wrath and judgment coming against our sin or. God's plan to send Christ to redeem us, to save us from that wrath. We wouldn't know about that unless someone told us this gospel message. And I know there's something of a pushback when people hear this idea of hearing is the first stage. I've heard a number of people over the years, they they, they hear that and they want to say, okay, yeah, but what about about the family living out on the island, Swiss family Robinson? What about the, the tribe out in the jungle that's never heard the gospel? You saying God's going to judge them because they've never had a chance to hear the gospel? It's a great question. I always want to respond. Right. That's a great. I honestly don't know the answer to that. I don't know how God intends to work that out for those people. I've seen all kinds of amazing examples in history how He can do it. But here's the thing. You have heard it. So how do you respond? We can talk about the people, the tribe out in the jungle some other day, but what about you? You have heard the gospel. What do you think? How do you respond? But What's also very important for us to clearly clearly see, regardless of any of that, is that according to the Bible, the experience of our salvation begins with hearing and not doing. It begins with hearing a message and not doing, by receiving, not trying to earn some kind of favor in God's eyes. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says so well, it is not good news to be told that you should worship God and please God. The good news is to be told of what God has done for us in Christ. It's being told that there's a God and you should love him and worship him is not good news to you because you can't do it, at least not consistently. But to be told that someone has come and perfectly obeyed for you, covered your sin fully for you, that is good news. It's news of what's already happened not good advice about what you should start trying to do. Okay, so that's stage one. The next stage of God's plan that we would, is that we would hear the gospel of what Jesus has done and then believe. Hear the gospel message and then believe it. Which sounds obvious, but I think what Paul is clearly implying here is that just hearing the gospel message alone is not enough. In order to save us, hearing must be followed with belief, must be followed with faith. Consider, for example, uh, the example that we have in the book of Acts, Peter's first sermon after Pentecost in Acts 2, where after hearing the gospel message proclaimed, we read this, then the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So they've heard this and they believe it, they're like, okay, so that means something, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit so they've heard the message they've they've believed and said I'm cut to the heart I can't believe that I've offended against God what can I do how how do I receive this salvation and he says repent turn from your sin and be baptized and, and what a, what are repentance and baptism but outward signs of belief outward signs that we believe the message and we are turning towards it. Final stage. Final stage of God's plan for our salvation is that we are marked with a seal. This promised Holy Spirit. To be marked with a seal suggests the way that documents or royal decrees in this time period. Would, they would put wax over, over the top of it and then mark it with the king's signet ring to say that this is both from him and it is sealed and, and now cared for by him until the right recipients can open it. I think what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look now, the Holy Spirit has become God's mark on you. You have been sealed as His possession now. When you turn to Him in belief, you are marked and sealed as God's own possession. But you notice he also says, the Spirit is a deposit, a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance as adopted children of God. It's It's the, I am absolutely promising by giving you this deposit, I'm going to pay the rest of the inheritance one day. This is yours now, although you haven't yet taken possession of it. This is yours now because I've promised it by giving you the Spirit. Scholars tell us that this Greek word used here for deposit is in modern-day Greek the term they use for an engagement ring. It's a promise. I, I, my love is set on you. My desire is to make you the one I share my life with. So that's God's plan for how salvation will come about in conformity with His will. A plan, again, He works actively in order to bring about that we would believe, that we'd hear, believe, and be marked with His Spirit. But when you think about this three-stage process, when you think about this, I think it includes a very clear call to every single one of us who would say that we believe we're included in God's plan to unite all things in Himself. I think it's It includes a call to us as well. And this is where I think that those two camps I mentioned earlier can both fall into some kind of error. Because on the one side, the one who says our salvation is solely a result of the choice that we make alone to put our hope and faith in the work of Christ on the cross. If that's where you land, if that's the camp you're in, there can become an incredible burden placed on our shoulders if that's what we believe, because now we feel like it's up to us to bring about God's plan to unite all things together in Christ. So, man, if I don't, if I don't share the gospel with the right people, if I don't share in time, uh, if I don't, worst of all, if I don't share the gospel well enough or in a compelling enough way and they choose to reject it, now they're going to spend an eternity separated from Christ because of me. I take all of the burden on to me because it's a choice we have to make. And I think that's a wrong extreme to go to. But on the other side, for the one who understands our salvation solely a result of the predetermined choice of God alone, and that certainly seems to be what Paul is teaching here, there can become an an incredibly apathetic attitude when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to being the witnesses that Jesus also called every one of us to be who are his adopted children. We can start to believe that God's plan to unite all things in himself. That's up to him. Who cares? What what difference does it make if I share the gospel with anyone? He's going to save who he's going to save, sit on my hands, and just enjoy the fact that I'm saved. That's not right either. So I think what Paul writes in our passage here today is especially helpful to... It's a helpful corrective to the first camp here because I think it unburdens us from the responsibility. Just carrying the responsibility of people's eternity on our shoulders... Basically, we have to be the ones to help them make the choice or there's no chance for them. If what Paul says about God's choice is right, that should give us a great deal of of freedom and hope in that. But I think what Paul writes as a helpful corrective to the other side, to the other camp, we read about God's plan for salvation, the very same plan in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is a helpful corrective here because there's where Paul writes, Now faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Great. That sounds very much like what Paul's plan he just said was. But just before that, just before that restatement of the plan, he writes this. He says, But how then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? To understand that God's plan to unite all things together in him includes us. We're included in that plan. Not because he needs us, but because he wants to include us in it. In the closing of verse 14 there, and notice Paul speaks of our future redemption. There's a redemption that's already happened in Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. There's a future redemption, the one we looked at last week over in Romans 8, of which the gift of the Holy Spirit is a confirming deposit of our inheritance as children of God, that it will surely come to pass. It's God's promise that inheritance is yours now, even though you have yet to take possession of it. But if you look closely, you'll notice that the language that he uses to describe those who have heard, believed, and been sealed is this. He calls us those who are God's possession. Those who are God's possession, which perhaps doesn't sound like much until you realize that this is the language used throughout the Bible to describe the chosen, treasured, set-apart people of God. All through the scriptures in the Old Testament, the people of Israel that he called from one man and created, this nation set apart for himself, those are my people, my treasured possession. And it's also how he refers to the church made up of Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament. Those who are set apart as my treasured possession. That's how God sees us today, church, as his treasured possession. Possession which I think is just one more example after another, giving us the indication that none of this, none of God's purpose and plan for our salvation has anything to do with his self-absorption. So yes, yes, this is inescapably God's plan in Christ to bring about all things in heaven and on earth together for the praise of his glory and grace. It is, and yet. I think what we've clearly seen this morning over and over again in this passage is that the true benefactors of this plan are ultimately all those he's actively working to unite and reconcile back to himself. His, his treasured possession, it, us. We are the true benefactors of his plan that he has said to be for his, the praise of his glory and grace. As John Stott so beautifully summarizes, and I'll close with this, he says, here then are the how and why of God's people, who are also his heritage and possession. How did we become his people? According to his good pleasure and will. Why did he make us his people? For the praise of his glory and grace. Thus, everything we have and are in Christ comes from God and returns to God. It begins and ends with his glory, for this is where everything begins and ends. Amen.